I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome along to the French Rugby Podcast with me, Tim Groves, former Scotland international, Johnny Beatty and ex-France hooker, Benjamin Kayser. We've got another great guest coming up on today's show and he's a former teammate of yours, Benji. So hopefully you'll have some juicy stories for us. Uh, but we're recording slightly later in the week than, um, than we maybe planned because you've been selling your chateau in France, haven't you, Benji? So um, are you a millionaire <laughs> three times over now? No, definitely not. I mean, I, I don't have the... The luxury of living on the Côte Basque, you know, Clermont is, is a humble, low to the ground town um, that just needs to get going. But listen, officially the worst, the kindest, but the worst movers in history <laughs> and made it particularly interesting. You know, all the cliches that we try to talk about, you know, about France and England, this and that, well, my word, they were, they were all the way up there. I mean, I'll sum it up to you that there was this guy, this weird looking long haired guy who was rolling his cigarette in front of our house the day of the move. And he's like, and that. And Andrew, my wife was like, oh, listen, I think there's some weirdo there. So I'm there grabbing my golf club, you know, ready to go and kick some shit. And actually he's like, oh no, hello, no. I'm here to, because um, my wife uh, renovates mirrors. I'm here to start packing the mirrors. And I'm looking at him like, wow, okay. So this guy, you know, is, is trying to smoke. Oh, I can't smoke inside the house. No, sorry. You know, it actually sort of bothers <laughs> me just a tiny bit. And then he starts wrapping those mirrors and stuff, but he didn't wrap the feet. I said, yeah, but don't worry. When you put them in storage, they've got cardboard on the floor. You know, they don't get, yeah, but how are they going to get to storage? It's like, well, in the van. Is there, are there, is there a cardboard in the van? No. It's like, you do the math, mate. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. It's... So it's long. So I just went back to finish all the little bits. I still have half the house left there. Um, I mean, so I took the wine, 100%. I took, I took, a <laughs> priorities, few, I took my yeah. shirt. Good stuff. Yeah, priorities. I took my shirt. I took everything my wife wanted, obviously. But I mean, it was just legendary. Like a dressing room with three doors, empty, empty, full. So it's not like they forgot like a box here and there. It's the like doors that did not even open. So, so a long few days, but listen, that's done. And now I'm happy to be here. Uh, was your week better, Johnny? My mind's been super quiet. So my, my wife, Jen's getting to the end stages of pregnancy. So we're effectively on a self-imposed lockdown. Um, so all travel, everything to games has, has kind of been kicked back. We've got maybe three, four, five weeks to go. So just waiting for the little bub to arrive, which will be good fun, quiet. Um, time's ahead over Christmas, I imagine. But, but that's been it. So rugby now is on lockdown for me. It's all going to be 
watched on the TV um, on the couch um, instead of being up in Paris for Canal Plus um, or even back with ITV, back for Scotland, Georgia was the plan, but now it's not going to happen. So quiet time, family time, which I'm looking forward to um, and a crazy couple of months ahead. Good stuff. Well, we'll get our guest on soon, but it's um, it's all been kicking off off the pitch in France, hasn't it? So just give us the lowdown on what's been happening in terms of the the kind of dispute between the LNR and the FFR about the availability of internationals for uh, for this autumn, if you can. Uh, if it's, we'll speak about it with Scotty because it will, it will fit perfectly, basically, of what his history, what happened and stuff. But so the French Federation elections just happened last, was it uh, Saturday? And the results came in and Bernard Laporte is still, is still in place with a huge victory of 51.48%. And he got asked, you know, did you tremble? Like, Why would I even be scared? When the results are there for you, you know, it's fine. So it's all a bit, a bit of a show. But let's just say now there's just the start of the problem because the league actually sued World Rugby and the Federation because they consider that is... They, they pushed through this um, Alternations Cup with six um, French team games, uh, including one week off in the middle. It's just too much to ask for the, the, the top 14 clubs to bear this heavy weight and burden of having to save world, um, world economy of rugby through international games, despite the fact that it's going to hit the top 14 clubs who honestly at the moment, they're coming out one after the other. 5,000 people in the stands was already complicated. 1,000 people, which is what is the case in most, uh, most clubs, it means that in by January, January, so it's like the day after tomorrow, they're going to have to find solutions because they can't, they just, they, they won't be able to survive that way. So to be honest, French rugby is in jeopardy. Uh, we were mainly able to create this economy through rugby thanks to hospitality, to fan experience, to uh, venues, sort of economy that was generated, or generated around it. No more fans, no more venues it makes it extremely complicated. On top of that, the federation wants to save their ass. And they're basically blaming everything on the league. So the tension is sky high to the point where it's almost like a legal pursuit now. I think it's, it's never, it's unheard of in, in the history that they're basically uh, going through in front of courts and stuff. They had a few meetings of conciliation, I don't know how you call that, but that went nowhere. Uh, they said, okay, for five games, Federation said six games or seven games, potentially because there's one in the middle. This, this, international rugby starts by world rugby starts after that with the federations and that's how it should be in my my mind but to be totally honest when they created this auto nations cup and they add a friendly game before the last six nations game i just think that's pushing it that's a bit harsh you know uh, i mean top 14 is already shaken for different reasons that we spoke about already the reason why they're so tense economically is because they created this uh, live or die situation it's not that they don't want to be sustainable they're paying maximum they, that they can and they're spending as much as they can and they created this fake economy that we spoke about that now is getting hit in the mouth by, by COVID. So it's, it's an incredibly tough situation. Somebody's going to die. That's what worries me. Somebody's going to fall. But that's the case everywhere. Um, yeah. Going back to Bernie and Bernard Laporte, his, his election win kind of reminds me of Brexit. It's just going to divide people and keep going. Like it's the same percentage as well. It's going to divide people and the story's going to keep going. But... Like ultimately, it's the one game added that's the difference in the sticking point. But realistically, the FFR, the French Federation, they normally have four internationals anyway in winter. But that's it. They're all at the point, like you said, Benji, Benji you know, in January, something's going to start falling. But it's not just France. You look at UK, you look at Ireland, you look at the English clubs. I mean, there are a few big clubs in England already. 
this close to going in the next month. There's yeah. a few huge names, huge clubs that are, are close to falling. And France is no different. Everybody's affected in the same way. The situation is dire for everybody. You've got racing, Racing Metro, your Jackie Lorenzetti came out, I think, in March and said, look, already we're losing 1.3 million a month in salaries and paying out. So it's not sustainable. Something has to change. But ultimately, the way the world is acting just now on a political level, everything is shut down. Everything is forced. So everybody's got their hands tied. And now politically, it's like political grab what can we get financially what can we grab how can we grab power but at the end of the day the amount of money that they're spending on the legal wrangle that's going to come out of it is only going to generate more debt so it's not helping anybody the ffr again isn't a rich even though it's a huge rugby nation there isn't a lot of money in the ffr they don't generate that much cash so they need everything they can get and the clubs the exact same so um it's not nice to watch unfold it's it's horrible but it's the same everywhere right now unfortunately but to give you to to, to your point johnny just to give you an example of the the reality in which the world is and obviously the economy of rugby is and the side bit that which is we need to win an election uh live or die Uh, the budget that was presented by the FFR to basically, you know, I said, oh, the results speak for me, for Bernard Laporte. Apparently, apparently, and I'm saying, okay, apparently, because it's not um, a given fact. They based their budget on five international games of November with 80,000 people. They based their budget with Six Nations 2021 with 85,000 people in Stade de France every single game. So that's, not only is it being sort of blind, but it's also bluntly cheating. So, so and, and that's the reality of you still want to win your day-to-day battle. The big thing is that the massive battle that everybody is in, they should be aligning forces and trying to find a solution together. Otherwise, like you said, somebody's going to get punched in the mouth. And it's a domino effect. Huh? Somebody's going to be hurt. And I, I, would, I would just hope and cross my fingers that at some point they're going to get a bit of, of smartness within them and actually find a solution together rather than just killing each other for each other from 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 side to side when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We mentioned it, Benji. Today's guest knows a thing or two about battles, disputes between the FFR, the LNR, French politics behind the scenes in rugby. And he's a former teammate of yours. So we couldn't get any stories really out of, out of Sergio when we had him on. But hopefully 
Scott Spedding is gonna is gonna give us some juice. So um, let's get him on. He's uh, he's also cancelled a round of golf. I understand to be to be with us today. So that's commitment <laughs> for you. So that um, is commitment. It's former Claremont and France fullback Scott Spedding. How are you, Scott? Hey guys, good to see you. To set the scene for us, you're uh, you're retired now. How's retirement treating you? Where in the world are you? Yeah, so I'm down in uh, Osogo, which is not too far from uh, where Johnny is down the southwest coast. Fell in love with the place when I played in Bayonne down here. So enjoying life down here. Family's happy uh, and really enjoying retirement, to be fair. I think uh, the time was right for me to call it a day. And Benji has just been selling his house, he's been telling us, in, in Claremont. Um, but he, he tells us that where you live, uh, property's a bit more expensive, Scott. So. Mate, to be honest, he's got an absolute mansion. It's a beautiful <laughs> spot that he's created with, with his lovely wife. An incredible spot they've got. I'm, I'm not that close to Scott because he hasn't invited me down to Osgore yet, <laughs> which I'm a little bit hurt by. But, but Nick Abandonon's been there and he told me it's a spectacular spot. Um, beautiful little place. Andrew's been down here, Benji, but you haven't, eh? <laughs> exactly. <there. laughs> Can you actually yes. finish your sentence? Can you finish your sentence? You said that she was invited by your wife because otherwise it sounds very weird. Eh? <laughs> Love it down here. Obviously, we, uh, we I think we got in at the right time. You know, I think property has exploded down here. Like Benji said, with with whole coronavirus thing, people are looking to get down to the coast and maybe live in more uh, spots like these. So I think we got in at the right time and uh, quite fortunate. But uh, we're very happy down here. Little boy's happy. He joined rugby uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago with Johnny's little one. So they go play rugby on Saturday mornings, and family's happy. And so playing a lot of golf. Playing tomorrow, right? Yeah, hopefully, if, you, if you're not podcasting, mate. <laughs> this is it. It's you today, mate. Golf tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that uh, your and Johnny's uh, sons are playing rugby together, so there's potentially a couple of future French internationals there. So we'll get on to your uh, France career shortly. But just take us right back to the start. So obviously, you grew up in South Africa, played for the Sharks, South Africa under 21. So presumably, you grew up wanting to play for the Springboks, right? Yeah, look, I was uh, I was passionate about rugby from before I could play. Like at extremely young age, five, six, seven, you know, I collected all the cards of the of the professional players back then. I, I loved watching rugby. My dad would take me to to go watch. Back then, it was Transvaal became the Lions, and would go watch Springbok games. So look, I was I was taken by all rugby. Obviously, growing in, growing up in South Africa, the Springboks were. Uh, were, were obviously the, the team, especially around then. I was I think I was nine. I went to the World Cup final where they where they beat the All Blacks. My dad was he was was very kind in organising tickets, and he was able to take me, and my brother. So that was an awesome experience. So I think I was taken by the rugby thing, and it turned out that you know from a young age that I that I played decently, and I was very fortunate to get scholarships to go to a decent school. So it quickly became that look, I could make something out of this. Um, but yeah, so obviously the way it panned out, once you get a bit older, it's just about looking for opportunities and trying to make it into any sort of team. But as a youngster, absolutely taken by, by South African rugby, by rugby in general, and just passionate about the sport from a, from a very young age. So how did that move come about, Scott? You talked about opportunities. How did the move to France come about for you after South African 21s and being part of the South African system? So... Quite a young, uh, at a young age, I was pulled up into the Sharks senior side, um, but probably in hindsight, well, in hindsight was too early. You know, I didn't understand what it took to be a professional or uh, the sacrifices you need to make, the way you need to train and stuff like that. I was fortunate enough to play for South Africa in 21 and uh, we played the World Cup was in France, was in Clermont and uh, got back to South Africa, you know, 
opportunities had dried up a bit. I was playing in a shark site, which was uh, littered with Springboks at that stage. And uh, Breve contacted uh, me and said, look, uh, they, they'd see me play in that World Cup. There would be an opportunity, but I would, I'm going to play with the, with the juniors, you know, I'll play with the Espoirs, like the under-21 or under-23 side in, in France. Um, and opportunities were, were few and far between in South Africa. So I thought, you know, look, it's an opportunity. And uh, I went over, and to be honest, I did not know how big rugby was in France until I got there. You know, you see these stadiums week in and week out, passion with the fans and stuff. And quickly, my um, my goals and sort of my ambitions were to make a career for myself, if possible, in France, uh, and probably met the right guys at the right time. Yeah, you know, guys like uh, Jamie Noon, a guy like uh, Gerard Fossler. Uh, at Breve and these guys quickly took me under my wing very professional guys and the way they train the way they worked and you know I learned a lot from them sort of got my life in order and started training properly and started uh, and slowly and slowly uh, performances changed and uh, was able to start building a career for myself in Breve. I remember you telling me that that final that was it final semi-final yeah, it was the final I think that you you lost to France in in Michelin to for the under 21s uh, World Cup what 2006 something like that um, and you said you were impressed by the place that you were sort of sort of blown away by the facilities the passion like you said the area and this and that and that at the back of your mind you always had a thing about listen and then you started obviously following Clermont sort of the way that they were playing and this and that and you, you, in the back of your mind, you're like, ah, that, that's a place that I would love to play for. Breathe, just to set the scene, is probably the biggest rivalry and the biggest enemies that you could possibly find. They hate our guts. Um, like, lit to the point they would, they would spit at your face, basically, before a game and all that. But um, even him playing there, you mentioned Gerard Vosler, who ended up playing for Clermont as well. So tell me if I'm wrong, but is it always in the back of your mind that you think, ah, this, is, this could be a place for me, right? It could be a good place for my rugby. I think Clermont sort of came on my radar when I got to France. If you just, I mean, we've seen Clermont play over the years and just like the, the way they clean teams up. I mean, I've, I've gone to play in Clermont with Brive or with Bayonne and uh, you know, you almost know you're going to get a hiding. You know, even the coaches know, you can see by the teams that they put out, you know, rather save our guys and let's send some young guys because you're on a hiding to nothing. And just the... The way Clermont went about their rugby and the power that they showed and everything, I sort of it was almost like when you get the opportunity where Clermont comes along and asks you to go to the club, it's almost like a selection. Do you know what I'm saying? You get selected to go to go to Clermont, and um, I didn't ever think I would get the opportunity to go there, but it was definitely a club that I sort of aspired to play for. You know, I think a lot of guys would dream to go play for Clermont, especially back then. The, the teams that, that that they were that they had. So yeah, that's why when the opportunity did come, uh, it was a massive move for me to to get an opportunity to play for a club like that with the squads that they had and the facilities and everything that goes with it. I want to go back a step. So before we get to Clermont, let's talk more about Breve because obviously Clermont is here and, and Breve obviously is a different budget, different level of facilities. So as a young kid coming through the Sharks Academy, playing with top level Springboks and then arriving at Breve, like you touched on guys like Jamie Noon, but when you arrived, what was Breve like in terms of a rugby culture, a work ethic, a place to play your rugby, um, compared to what you knew that then as a young South African bloke? Well, for me, it was different. I, I came up and I played with the juniors, you know. I trained I trained with the senior guys, but I played my first whole season, I played with the, with the Espoirs, and... Uh, it was actually it was really enjoyable. You play, we, we, we ended up winning the, the French Championship the, that year and uh, it was really enjoyable. It was probably 
looking back on it, was the best way that I could integrate into the team. I was one of the only foreigners in that side. So, you know, quickly had to learn French. And, you know, we went every Sunday afternoon, we'd go play in the most random places. And it was really a, it was really a good experience for me. And didn't you play 10? Didn't you play 10, Scotty? Yeah, you? I played. I, I was a fly-off back then, yeah. So I was playing the 10. The biggest fly-half in France. That's <laughs> 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 to show it's you the quality truck. of rugby at this point. You could just dummy his way the whole time. Just, hey, yeah, fly. Just get those big shoulders into those poor little Frenchies who were just barely out of high school. They got bullied by you, mate. <laughs> No, but it was good fun, and we still we still got a WhatsApp group with the, the with those guys today, um, and it really was a great experience. And you know, I remember celebrating that um, when we won the championship there. We celebrated for like a week with those boys, you know, and they, you know, and you just realize how important it was at, at young age groups for these guys. How important like winning a title was for them, and it really was a cool experience. But for me, the cultural shock, the the culture shock that I sort of got uh, coming from South Africa, and I started playing a few games with the with the senior side was the change room before before the game. And Benji, you would know a few of the guys that Breve had back then. Breve had a, a really good side back then. Um, Mental. You know, qualified for the for the Heineken Cup in the, the first or second year I was there. Um, but I mean, guys like Arno Miller, uh, Guillaume Rib, um, Pascal, you know, like these guys were, they were guys you'd rather have on your team than play against them. You know, they were out there to cause havoc and, I remember first couple of games with the, with the with the senior side. You know, just before the game, one of those three guys would shout and everyone into the into the showers. Everyone, so like, I wasn't quite sure what's going on here. You know, in South Africa, change rooms are quite chilled before a game. Everyone sort of just cracks on with their thing. And uh, we were playing a game, a big relegation game against Lyon, and uh, they started slapping guys and uh, slapping guys all around the change room. And, and I remember Guillaume Rib went up to one of the Argentinian props. And headbutted him, split his head open. But he, when, as he took the hit, so he split his head open. Blood was pumping out. He went back and hit the knob in the shower that that, that lets the water out. So both of them are drenched in water. One guy's pissing blood out his head, and uh, and now we've got to go out and play. And I, the guy couldn't start the game. Now he's on the bench getting stitched up before the game. And uh, I, geez, I just I was like taken aback by the the noise and these guys were shouting and slapping dudes. So that was, but you know, I suppose that was that was French rugby and the, the stories you hear of old school French rugby. It didn't work on me because I remember once I took quite a big slap from Arlen, Arno Miller for the first. He's 20 a big man, eh? For the first twenty minutes of the game, my ear was just ringing. Completely, <laughs> completely put me off my game, and I was just trying to recover from my ear ringing the whole time. And uh, but you know, those are special memories. You know, it's something that you got to experience and. Uh, uh, yeah, I really enjoy. I really enjoyed my time in Brie, but It was a good club for me. It was a good club for me to to get opportunity to to learn from guys like that. And uh, I, like I said, I, there were a few guys there that we crossed paths that really uh, added massive value in to me becoming a professional. Just a quick one about Arno Miller. So he he did his whole career basically in like Federal One, then Second Division, and then I had this team in Albi who absolutely killed everyone, and they got promoted to top fourteen, a tiny little place near Castres. And they killed everyone because of that that sort of warrior mentality and this and that. And then he ended up in the French team. Yeah. Marc Clévermont picked him up. He had nothing to be doing in international rugby, to be fair. He pretty much said it. <laughs> He's like, I barely, I barely 
power walk on on the field. What what am I gonna do playing against you know Johnny Beatty and those fast fuckers? But um, he um, so he went then back to breathe and all that. And just for the little uh, anecdote, he's the last time that I got punched in the face um, in a scrum. You know that old school thing when you know that the the, the lock sort of waxed the arm. The other guy who did it to me is Jimbo, but he didn't he didn't punch me. He just oh. put my hand he put my, his hand in my face and I couldn't hook because I couldn't see a thing. And it, I thought that was actually pretty smart, you know, for once uh, from Jimbo. But, but he couldn't but, even get that right. <laughs> yeah, he, was gonna say, no, no, he was trying to but, punch you. He was trying to punch you. Arnaud Mela, Arnaud Mela, I'm telling you, told me he was going to punch me and he actually missed me a little bit. And the guy who was next to me is his hooker. He absolutely demolished this poor hooker called uh, Michael Delpeche. I can't remember, can't remember his name. He went to Perpignan after that long-haired guy. Oh my word, he absolutely whacked him. So I had a bit of a mark, yeah, but his, his hooker was dead meat. So that, that was the type of guy that they were. Huh? There were a few of them. There were about five or six of them really known for that sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, it was actually quite reassuring as a young guy. You know, we maybe didn't have the towards the end of my time, we didn't have the most, uh, the biggest names or the most talented team, or whatever, but we really had guys who, who you'd rather have on your team going to play the big guys because they, they, we saw them do stuff and rattle opposition, uh, especially when teams came to play us. You could see they were rattled coming to breathe because, you know, we had this pack. We had these guys that sort of created this intimidation and uh, I think we won a lot of games because of, because of that, you know, and yeah, rather guys you'd play with than against them. Eh? And around that time, Scotty, like, it was amazing that it worked for you and you enjoyed it. But there's obviously other guys that have been quite vocal after they've left that they really didn't enjoy it, didn't enjoy the club. Guys like Andy Goode, um, obviously fantastic players in the Premiership and for England, but for whatever reason, it didn't work for them. So can you put a finger on why it worked for you and, and why you loved it so much and why for work other guys ethic. that arrived, work why ethic. they didn't get it or why they couldn't buy in or what they didn't <laughs> a, enjoy it? A set of balls, maybe. That might be the difference <laughs> between the guys that you just mentioned. If Jamie Noon killed it in brief for years and Andy Good did fuck all, I mean, that, that sums it up for you, mate. Well, you look, I, I wasn't, you know, when I came over, they, were, they, they had quite a big contingency of, of English guys. I think there was Andy Good, there was Sean Perry, uh, Steve Thompson, Ben Cohen, uh, Ricky Flutie came over for a bit. Obviously, Jamie Noon was there. So there was quite a big um, English connection there. And um, obviously, I think maybe when a couple of games are lost, you know, fingers get pointed. I'm not sure. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, Andy was Andy was actually, he actually bought in. Andy spoke decent French. You know, he, he really made an effort to speak French with the guys. He was well liked by all the, by, by the squad. He, obviously, he's, he's good fun in, in a change room. And uh, I think maybe the, with Andy, maybe the clash came in with the coach at the time. I think him and Ugo Mola didn't get on. Um, it, which was bizarre because Andy would go and play Six Nations for England. He would then come back to breathe and he wouldn't play. So I think Andy was getting maybe a bit frustrated and then he got the opportunity to go to to the Sharks for Super Rugby halfway through our season and he took that opportunity to rather to rather go play. So uh, I think you know, that left a sour taste in, in Andy's mouth but he really was a, he was an appreciated guy there and he uh, he really did make an effort I think he you know now he only throws out the big swear words in French but he he, he was uh, he did buy into the whole speaking French and, and made an effort and in terms of your next move Scott you you moved from Breve down to Bayonne so was that all motivated by wanting to be by the coast the sun and the sand or, or how did that come about? <laughs> Once again, like I, I, I can't say at that stage that I that I had a lot of clubs to choose from. You know, Bayonne. I was starting to play decent rugby towards my end of the time in 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 in, in brief. Thanks to Ugo Muller, look, he, the current Toulouse coach. You know, he he said to me, "Look, I'm going to play you whether you play well or you play badly. 
you're going to play to the end of the season. And that sort of gave me the confidence. You know, I had a lot of doubt whether I was up for it, whether I had the... And, and I just played. And if I had a bad game, he stuck to his word. He kept me going. I was playing fly half. He then later moved me to fullback. Um, and so that gave me confidence. And that last season, it sort of really started, it started coming together for me uh, with my performances and stuff. And uh, obviously, uh, Bayonne then came along and it was an opportunity to go there. They also had they'd signed quite a few big stars at that stage um, with the, the Rocker Thokos, the Phillips, uh, Cedric Caymans was there. Um, and so it was, it was just, for me, it was, a, it, was a, it was a step up for me to try to keep going after where I need to try to get to, you know, obviously uh, later on the, the getting, getting asked to go to Claremont was obviously that was, that those are the steps I needed to take to get to a certain position to put myself in a better position. But I can't say I had, I, I can't say I had a lot of clubs looking, looking for my services at that stage. So it was, it was great to have one who was keen on me. And that probably was Bayonne where everything came together for me properly. And it was a huge period for the club. I mean, Alan Athelou obviously put a lot of money in as the main sponsor. You touched on some of the guys. You had Chisholm there as well, Remy Martin, some huge names. But for, for whatever reason, it didn't quite go right on the field. You were one of the few shining lights in that group of people that we've just talked about. Um, can you put a finger on why it didn't go so well during that period at Bayonne? I think they would have expected much more success, but it turned out to be a relegation battle pretty much every year. Can you give us an insight as to why it didn't really function on the pitch for you guys? Yeah, from, I think, this is just my opinion, hey, from, Aflulu came along, he had a lot of money, he wanted stars there. So they went out and got big names. But I, I, I'm not so sure that in, there was much thought process behind the, the sort of the rugby aspect behind it. You know, it's all great and well, he wanted to have adverts for his, uh, for his brand and everything. And all these guys did add, but you needed to build a team around these guys. I, I like Joe Rockathoka is a perfect example of it. You know, you get Joe Rockathoka over, I mean, superstar. But he's, he can't do it by himself. We all know rugby's played by, you need 14 guys around you, putting him in positions to finish his one-on-ones. End up throwing him the ball. He's got 12 oaks all over him. He's, he's, he's not going to be able to, to create magic from, from nothing. So I think there, there might have been a lack of, of, of foresight. Obviously, great getting these players, but how do we build around them? How do we create something? And obviously, takes time to work. You're playing against big teams. You're playing against Claremont. To lose these guys, are, these guys every, their machine's rolling already. And they were just too impatient with it. And I think Afflu got quite impatient. He wanted to do, they got rid of a few guys. He wanted to then pull out and, you know, sort of left the club in a bit of a spiral, negative spiral, you know, now you've got to try to rebuild, find more sponsors. And, um, you know, in Bayonne, historically, has always had a lot of politics, which doesn't help because the club is really important to the town. And uh, there's always a lot of politics involved. And so it sort of became a, you know, hiring and firing of coaches, hiring and firing of players. And there was just no stability at that stage, which was disappointing because we did have a good side and we were able in, in, in a couple of those seasons to pull it together and, and play really well, but um, just lacked a bit of stability. And then you mentioned the big move to Clermont. Did Benji give you a warm welcome? And what were your, what were your first impressions of him? <laughs> yeah. no, Benji, no, to be fair, Benji, even when I arrived in the French team and in Clermont, was, was extremely welcoming. He's one of the few... Uh, probably in Clermont that goes out of his way to welcome guys and I think that's maybe somewhere where Clermont could, could work on you know um, between the players you know it's either you know I sit at my table you sit at yours whereas Benji's probably you know he's there he makes sure people are, are welcome even Andrea his wife goes out of, the, out of her way to make sure that the, the wives settle into like a bit of a 
uh, a friendship group and make sure that everyone's settled. So she's still coming to make sure you're settled in Hossegor. She's still making the journey down, right? You've already said. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, no, she's just uh, she's just doing the iron. <laughs> but yeah, no, I went to I went to Clermont thinking I was going to touch heaps of ball, but we just we couldn't win a line out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to be fair, to be fair, so you you touched on it, Scotty. There's there was a time where he was playing for Bayonne uh, and picked for the French team, and then the move arrived. So obviously, because there was heaps of guys from Clermont, and and we got along well, so we chatted about that move a lot. But is there's nothing better being part of a club when there's a guy's like, listen, I would, I would die to to go to Clermont. I'm dying to sign there because I, I want to bring. I want to. And at the time, we had Nick Bendenon playing fullback. We had Aistoeva uh, who who could play fullback in the set. So there was big. It was a big challenge for Scott to, as a French international, to throw himself into the the competition of of, of full on amazing team. You know, so 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 I I loved the attitude of listen. I would just love to come and to give and to give because Scott doesn't tell you, but I think you're being incredibly humble. To be fair, you're always praising others. You're saying you're speaking about others for their work ethic and stuff. You were like a, a workhorse off off the field, um, who always played blamed yourself before you blamed everybody else nonstop. Probably too much. We spoke about it loads of times. It was probably your your downside. You're always putting heavy a heavy burden on yourself when you know it's a team thing. When when the spirit is not there, spirit's not there, and um, and and no, so so it was really enjoyable to to welcome you to a club where, where you wanted to give everything, you you wanted to experience the full shebang, and was I, I mean I'm I'm desperate to speak about it because it's important because I've got two foreigners here who actually have a French passport. It's more than just buying to the culture; it's wanting to commit to the country, you know. And that's that's a whole different ball game than wanting to come to play for a couple of years, not really adapt, but and be good whatever you know just like not really be able wanted to commit so the way that it ended as well it was was a bit a bit painful because you guys well you scotty did go through the process of saying my my heart is half french you know it's yeah. it's more than just a, a day-to-day thing it's more than where i live it's 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 part of my blood now yeah we're, we're gonna touch on the on the, on the french citizenship the uh, getting French uh, citizenship and that was never a rugby move for me to for me to want to do that you know I had already been eligible to play for France three years prior to that so there had nothing to do with trying to make myself and I think that people thought maybe I was doing it to try to put myself in, in a spot to get selected for France but I'd always made the decision that as soon as the time allowed me that I was allowed to apply for, for, for citizenship that I was going to do that because I really did feel like this was now this was now home for me, and I wanted to, after my rugby career, make France home as it is now, and also give that gift to to my kids one day that you know I can give them a French passport, which is which in today's world is is a, is, a, is a big thing. So it, it it wasn't a rugby thing. I think some people thought that that's why I was going about it, but it, but it wasn't. And uh, but yeah, that's what it is. We, <laughs> you know, everyone uh, everyone has their opinions on things, but. No, and I really did enjoy my time in Claremont. You touched on, you touched on, on and Nick. You know that was also it was a big thing made about me and Nick fighting it out for the same position. The strange thing is, me and Nick never really saw it like that. Obviously, we, we we just sort of we became friends immediately. We still are really we good friends today. We comes and visits down here, well, you know, and um, we sort of just left it up. The coach is going to make his decision, and whoever he goes with, we'll go with. And it was just always like that. I mean, it, we. It, some guys can't seem to get on with guys in their position or sort of seem to have beef with guys in their position. And it was really weird because such a big thing was being being made about me and Nick playing the same position. Um, whereas we just 
sort of cracked on and it actually helped us get, getting some time off and, yeah. uh, and being able to share the position. I was going to say, it's impossible to play every game in top 14. Like you need to have shared position, competition, decent yeah. people to, to compete with. But I mean, what a luxury to have you two guys as your, your two fullbacks at, at Clermont. You were really, really lucky as a team to have you both. It would have been fun if it was just me and Nick. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> we, we thought we had this all worked out. Me and Nick sharing the game time. And this is going to be fantastic. Play half the season, great. Next thing they find medical joker, Ice Toyava, who comes along. And absolutely, honestly, one of the most skillful players you'll, yeah. you'll find. Like you can't even you can't even argue to the coach to say, "Well, I'm not playing." You know, the guy who's just <laughs> so classy. And then he ended up becoming probably the first choice uh, fullback. And me and Nick sort of found ourselves, you know, um, <laughs> fighting it out for second spot between us. So it really became where you had a we were in a position where we had three international fullbacks in our in that squad where probably a squad only needs one international fullback and maybe someone who can cover a bit. So it was, it was a very, um, uh, it was a, it was probably overloaded at, at the fullback position at that stage. But I mean, I mean, even with us, I mean, he's such a classy guy as well that it, it was very easy to, to accept not playing with guys like that ahead of you. Scott, going back again to your citizenship, I know that you really enjoyed the process of going through and going up and, and, and getting your passport, but they obviously as well, they made a bit of a case of you and they had a ceremony for you in Bayonne. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that ceremony and how it went. Yeah, so but you, get the, you get awarded the, 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 the citizenship and then it, it, a few, a, quite a few months later, they have a ceremony where you go over and you, know, you hand over your, your visas, whatever, and they actually award you, they award you your your papers and everything and all the it's a standard thing all the people that have been awarded it you know go to the ceremony and i had obviously just recently played for france so there was quite a lot of press at this uh, at this ceremony and uh did the ceremony they obviously go over the values of france and everything hand your papers over and then um, i was sitting with rob linda at the time another south african who played for bayonne who'd also been who'd also done the process and uh, all the press was there and um at the end, you've got to stand up and sing the national anthem. So I thought, you know what? I just played for France. I know they had national anthem now. Let me, I'm, I'm going to show these guys that I can, you know, I can give it. So I started singing, uh, got through the first, got through the first verse and, you know, thinking, you know, smashed it. But little did I know that the actual, the official version has three verses. The one, <laughs> the one we sing in the rugby is only the first verse in the chorus and then it ends. And so here I was, and I didn't know I didn't know what was cutting, and I had to I, I was trying to like mumble through the rest of the. <laughs> thing. I sort of went to my shell, was trying to get to the back of the back of the crowd with all these cameras, but um, yeah, I quickly realised that I probably made a bit of a fool of myself that day. <laughs> I love it; it's amazing. And Scott, you mentioned that the citizenship was not connected at all to to international rugby, but you said there you made your debut. And I remember at the time, there was a big thing about how emotional you were. So just talk us through kind of how it works, getting that call, um, like what you felt like at the time and then and then making your debut. Yeah, so there's actually a bit of a story behind that, which I've, I've never shared with anyone. Um, probably no one's really asked, but... Um, <laughs> we have, but, we have now, Scott, we have, tell <laughs> us. <laughs> So what happened was um, we were playing Clermont uh, on the Saturday night. I think it was, a, it was a very late game. It was a quarter to nine game on the Saturday night. I finished captain's run on the, on the Friday afternoon, went home, and I was busy having my pre-game barbecue or bra, you know, that I always used to do the night before a game, and I was in my apartment then. 
And um, while I was outside there, I got a phone call, a random number. And it was on the phone. He said, hello, Scott, it's Serge Blanco. Where are you now? So I was, I was like, I wasn't sure if it was a joke or... Anyways, he said, I'm coming, I'm coming to your place in 15 minutes. So I was like, jeez, okay. Quickly trying to tidy up the place, picking up my laundry. Oh, another steak on the barbecue? Yeah. <laughs> you just heard you're having a barbecue, <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he arrived 15 minutes later and um, came, up to, came up to my apartment. And I was, I'm like, this is like way surreal for me now. I've got Serge Blanco sitting on my couch. Uh, my steak's still burning outside. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I wasn't quite sure what he was there for. You know, I, I'd just recently been invited to the French Barbarians. I thought maybe, I know he, he's obviously heavily involved in that. Maybe it was to do that. I don't know if he wanted to, he was recruit me to go to Biarritz. And um, he said, look, there's been an injury in the French team. Brice Dulin has hurt himself. Uh, it hasn't been announced yet. It will come out tomorrow. Um, but he wanted to find out from my side what, what if I wanted to play for France. Um, and that I'm probably going to get selected the following evening. But he said, it's not sure. I, I, I can't, it's not sure yet. And we need to see how your game goes. So he, 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 left, he left me with that on a, on a Friday night. Pressure. <laughs> Pressure, yeah. And, and he left me with that on a Friday night. And he said, don't tell anyone. Don't even tell your parents, you know. Let's see, let's see tomorrow night. So he left me with that. So I, obviously, a lot of emotions going. Obviously, phoned my dad. Like, what do I do now? This is what's just happened. The next day, we went to the hotel, long day in the hotel, and uh, obviously news starts filtering out all over social media and uh, all the news things that Dulan is injured and who's going to be the backup fullback. Obviously, my name's being thrown around in there. I've got all my teammates giving me the big, you know, you're going to get called up. They're singing the national anthem and we're eating lunch and folks all having a go. But I, I, I was struggling with the emotion. It was so emotional to try to keep this all in. I was struggling to concentrate on my game. We had a massive game that evening. Um, so I actually ended up calling Joe Rokathoka and just asking him to just have a chat outside. You know, Joe's a very um, clear thinker. You know, he's very realistic about things. And he just helped put things into order for me. He just said, look, you've got a big game this evening. The only thing you can control now is your game. So whether you play well or badly, that, you, the, the, the selection is going to happen. You get chosen or not, whatever. But you, all you can do now is control, control how you play. And, uh, you know, it was emotional. I think I even I cried a bit with Joe that, <laughs> that afternoon outside there. Uh, anyways, went to the game. We had a decent game. I got charged down the first two minutes, which obviously didn't help my, my confidence. But I was able to, um, to rebuild the game. Had a decent game. We beat Clermont. And uh, I went up into the change room and I was just like, I didn't. I, it was so emotional. I didn't know what was, what was happening. Was it going to happen? Maybe I got charged down. Maybe they're not going to approve of that. You know, Benji says, I always think about the negatives. And, and I do. And was thinking about all the mistakes I made. Anyways, I, I needed to go to the toilet and then bay on the toilets or outside of the, the change room. And as I walked out, I bumped into uh, Patrice Legisque. And, uh, and he looked at me and he just said, I've got a plane ticket for you to come to, to camp. And I suppose it was just the buildup of emotion. It was the, the, the anticipation. The, I, I had two days of emotion inside me and I, it just sort of came out. I didn't, I didn't realize there was a camera there. I, I asked him if could I please go back into the change room, went back into the change room, and I didn't realize how viral the thing had gone until the next day. You know, I was set to go home and pack my bags and quickly get ready. We're leaving six in the morning to go to Paris. And, um, but yeah, in, in the end, people still talk, talk to me about it today. Um, you know, people stop me and chat to me about, you know, it's probably the most common thing people speak to me about. And, but it, obviously, it was a blessing in disguise because I think a lot more French people 
easily accepted me um, to play for France because they saw what it meant to me. So, look, it's something that uh, obviously still it was a great, great moment to, to get that. But yeah, there was a bit of a buildup of emotion getting to that point. That's an amazing story. And, and so just talk to us about how you then integrated into the squad. Because you mentioned when you came into the Claremont side, maybe obviously Benji was very friendly, but some others weren't. So what was it like going into that, that France camp and, and how were you welcomed as someone who obviously wasn't born in France, but everyone had seen that video and seen how emotional you were and how you obviously felt French and you wanted to play for France? It, look, going to French camp was, I was very, um, I was nervous. Eh? There's no, like, I'm coming from Bayonne. There were, we were two guys from Bayonne that got selected. The other one was uh, Charles Olivon, who's now the French captain. But you know, he was also he had never he was a 19 or 20 at the time. He didn't have, he didn't know anyone up there, and he, he didn't have any caps. And I didn't know anyone up there. I'd only played against all these guys. You know, it's a big Clermont contingency, Toulon, and I think it was racing at the time. Big groups of players from one club. So it was difficult for me going up there, not having teammates around me. You know, it was a lot easier when, later on when I would go to French camp and I'd have eight or nine Clermont guys with me. But I went up as a, as a, as a, as a bit of a loner. But yeah, I was very fortunate to have guys like Benji and other guys that went out of the way. A guy like Yannick Nyanga is always very friendly, always goes out of his way to, to help guys uh, integrate. So there were a few guys that, that obviously made efforts and then quickly became part of, of the team and stuff. And uh, obviously, difficult period for, for French rugby, but also we had, some, we had some wins and we had some good moments. And, you know, it was a fantastic experience for me to, to be part of, of, a, of a French side and different French sides, which was fantastic. You have to remember that Philippe Saint-André with, with Patrice Lagisquet and Yannick Bru, they were the three coaches helped by Serge Blanco at the time. And they were picking a lot of foreigners because they were not they were not listed. They were like, listen, the results are just not there. If the guy wants to play for the French team and he's the best in his position, then stuff the rest. Let's just go. So they picked Rory Cocotte and they picked uh, they picked Anthony Klassen. Well, I'm not sure he was French yet at that time. And Noah Nakatasi, you know, they just started big. So every time there was somebody, somebody's names was mentioned. Winnie Antonio. You know, every time there was somebody's name was mentioned, it was ah, oh, it's just another foreigner. But I think what Scotty did genuinely, because obviously it wasn't rehearsed or whatever, uh, even though if you want to get Serge Nonko to your flat, just put a little steak on the barbie, mate. He'll, <laughs> he'll sm smell it from a mile or two away and he'll be there. And I know Scotty's barbecuing skills and I would, I would, I would run as well for them. So it's only, it's only fair to say that you sort of, you, you got him in there, but that's right. You got to do what you got to do. And, but to be fair, his reaction, I know from the, from a fact that the typical Frenchman will take the piss out of Scotty. You've been crying a lot. But in their heart, they loved it. They loved it because you show, you show passion. You show that you care. You show that you're, you're just a general human being. That's, what, that, that's, that's the Latin side of French. We are full of emotions. It can be good. It can be bad. So when Scotty does it, you're like, ah, there's, there's more to that. It means a lot to him. Then if he means that much, then please come on board. No, I think it definitely, like you said, there, there, there was a bit of a, a stigma at that stage with foreign guys getting selected for France. And um, I think it definitely did break that. That helped break that ice of that. And people were a lot more listening. Yeah, there's more to this. It's not just a foreign guy coming to play. There's a lot of sacrifice that's got in. Um, and like I say now, I, I get stopped by people often when they're chatting and the, well, probably the most common thing they speak to me about is that, that video and how they were moved by that. And so that, you know, if it did help in people opening their, their, um, their perspectives a little bit, then I'm very grateful for that. 
And talk to us about, you mentioned Philippe Santandre and, and he was the, the coach at the time that you were playing under. And then obviously the 2015 World Cup and how it ended in the, in the quarterfinals. So there were some good times, but it didn't end very well. So talk to us about what it was like playing under Philippe and then how it all ended at the end of that World Cup. Well, look, Philippe, uh, he's a very nice guy. He was always very, very welcoming and very nice to me. He treated me and my family when they came over fantastically. I, I came in at the end of his, in his last year of his four years. And um, uh, like Benji said, I think he was looking for solutions uh, before the World Cup uh, in bringing a few foreign guys or new guys in before the World Cup. Um, I think he was under ex- extreme amount of pressure by that stage. I think the team had lost confidence. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy environment, you know. Um, uh, I think also what they try to do, which rightfully so, they try to save the four-year tenure by having a big World Cup. If you could have a big World Cup, we can sort of forget almost what happened in uh, 2011, although it wasn't as, obviously, they had a lot more success. And uh, so it, we got beasted in that, in that we had Benji, we got beasted in that two months leading up to the World Cup. Uh, I mean, we were extremely fit, but I probably think we were overcooked going into that. Guys were probably mentally and physically drained getting to the World Cup. And then, yeah, like we were up against it. We, everyone was hoping for some sort of uh, some sort of um, big surprise or a bit of a miracle or whatever. But it, if you look at the four years, you know, it, realistically, other than a miracle, like that wasn't going to happen, you know. But everyone, because of what's happened between France and the All Blacks in the past, uh, the, the rest of the world were hoping for some sort of piece of magic here. Uh, it just didn't pan out that way, and it was an extremely, uh, extremely tough way to end that World Cup. And yeah, also something that that was followed, I suppose, followed me and Benji around a bit, being part of being part of that. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a tough pull to swallow. I think the the whole world was watching that game, hoping for a for a repeat of a of a classic f- uh, France All Black game. And uh, and yeah, very disappointing to to be on the receiving end of. Oh, of a Harding in front of in front of such a big audience on such a big occasion. It was a sad. It was, but even for me, watching as a Scot, watching you guys and and seeing how much rugby means to this country, watching you guys, I was sad for you and sad for rugby fans. It looked like it was really hard and tedious to go through and to play. So, what was the question to both of you? Like, I don't doesn't matter who goes first, but what was it like in terms of? The environment around you, because you knew it wasn't easy. The French press is really difficult. They were killing you every week. What was that like to live through as a team and um, to try and perform with that hanging over you, both as a team and as individuals? I think for, for the French team at the time was was the result of the one thing that, for me, that Scotty, that we've been speaking a lot on this podcast, is the the fight between the clubs and the federation. They were just clearly not working together. It, it was, and you're sitting there, like in French, you say, le cul entre deux chaises. Your ass is between two chairs. It's literally what it is. Like you, you don't know who you're playing for. So we were fanatics of playing for Clermont. But every time I would come, you're talking about the 2015 World Cup. We did two finals that year with Clermont. We lost the Champions Cup finals to Toulon and we lost um, the top 14 final against uh, Stade Francais. They gave us two and a half weeks off. And then the first day I'm there on the BP. Mentally, we were absolutely drained. We spent hours on that freaking what bike that I want to chuck outside the window now because so it makes me want to think of horror stories. Um, and honestly, we had a sad World Cup. We peaked 
after four weeks, when you did it, we did a court session in Marcoussi and everybody went on the piss massively. <laughs> and, and we bollocked, we bollocked the coaches. And to be fair, Philippe is a good dude for that. He will accept the challenge. He will accept that you take the piss out of him and all that. And we peaked then after that. I don't know what you think, Scotty, but it was just dull. It was sad. We don't even know if we were in, in England or not for the World Cup. We would stay in the Merritt in Heathrow before it's playing Twickenham. Like, you're not even in London. Um, we stayed in the Vale Resort uh, outside Cardiff. You know that training Glamorgan. center? Whatever. Beautiful place, but it's freaking an hour away from Cardiff. Like We could have been anywhere in the world. It was just dull, sad, hotel room, hotel room, training, whatever. It, it was Honestly, it was like a terrible memory for me. I think, like, like, like what I said, I think we were, we were, we were, I think there was a general sense of just fatigue. You know, I think like Benji said, the large majority of the, of the group either came from Clermont or Toulon. These guys had just had massive seasons, massive top 14 and uh, Heineken Cup or Champions Cup seasons with their club. They come and do a massive two-month preseason. And I think other teams arriving at that World Cup arrive there with, you know, this is excitement. And now part of the World Cup, there's this buzz around you in the, in the center of town. There's, you can feel this. In, you know, it's just a buildup of emotion leading into these games. Whereas I feel like the French side going into it was just flat. You know, the guys were, even though obviously you want to get up for it, you, you want, your emotions are there, but you, you know, the mind and the, and, the, and, the, and the body just struggles to get up to, to the same level as, as the Irish, let's say, who just, just completely focused on this or the All Blacks, you know, put all the emphasis on, on getting ready for, for these games. And I find that disappointing. And I, I, I really realized uh, how bad it actually was when I went to Clermont because then I was in the French side. And so you'd play big top 14 games, big championship, uh, um, champions cup games, and then you've got to go play international, a big six, six to eight weeks with, 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 uh, with the Six Nations and come back and get straight back into it. Whereas I probably... You would be better off playing for a club like Bayonne if you were an automatic selection for France or a smaller club where you could play uh, the European Cup and you could sit out those games and, you know, some top 14 games where the, the coaches, you know, maybe going to give some other guys a chance because maybe not going to go win. You get a bit of a rest. But when you're playing for these big clubs and obviously that's where you want to be playing as a player, it becomes very difficult for the guys to be on the same level as, uh, as other nations. And, and I think that's where, honestly now... That would be my biggest, the biggest, if, if French rugby can just sort that out, it would really go a long way because uh, we, they're really not putting the guys in the best position to perform at that level. We, you, you mentioned the quarterfinal that we lost 60, what is it, 60 to 12 against New Zealand, I think, uh, the World Cup 15, 2015. Ask Scotty, the night before the game, we went through the playbook or whatever and we had a, a, a scrum move. Tell me you remember that one, Scully. But we had a, a scrum move that's like, you know, the eight picks up, backs to the six, whatever it is. You know that one that everybody does and because the yeah. nine's going to follow, blah, 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 blah. And they're like showing their see, this is going to work. This is going to work. Yannick Nyonga just raises his hands like, Philippe, mate, um, I think the ABs, I've got a yellow card, no? There's like the number six is missing. And they're like, he's there like looking at the screen. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. But it'll still work. It'll still work. You know, it's not a problem. So you're basically basing your the whole strategy of a freaking World Cup quarterfinal. It's going to be on the fact that if the number six sort of happens to have a yellow card, then that play will work. That that's that's how far we were from reality at the time. So yes, there's there's the Federation League hating each other, like Scotty said, the, the the emotional drain. But we were also not connected with the reality of modern rugby. We were miles away. And what was disappointing, like like I mentioned, was the whole world was really getting getting for this game and everyone was getting up for it and sort of 
yeah, if you if you look back on it, like it, it actually really was. You can't compare the two sides at that stage. Like it really, unless you really was a, a miracle that happened. But uh, you know, it was disappointing. You know, it was it was very disappointing. And then to end on that note, obviously, um, I think the guys sort of just uh, yeah, it was bad memory. But I suppose it's one you got to take with, eh? Um, the good and the bad. But yeah, every four years they show the the, the highlights of that game. So. <laughs> Well, it's no consolation after hearing your sad recollections of that story, but um, it might have been for some of the French fans that it went even worse for England than it did for you guys. So there you go. And then um, after that, obviously, you know, Guy Noves came in, and you you were a regular under under him as well. But from the outside, it was very much billed as you know he's done everything in club rugby. This amazing coach, what he's done at Toulouse, but he seemed to struggle at international rugby as well. So I mean, you've you've talked us through a bit of the you know the clashes behind the scenes that makes it difficult for coaches, but. Um, how was your time plan under him? Yeah, well, it, he obviously came in and he had to pick it up from, from quite low, which just after that all-black loss, you know, uh, everyone, the French team was at quite a low. So he obviously had, he was, he had, he needed some time to to get the team to where he needed to. It started off all right. He picked quite a lot of young guys, a few a few older guys, which I was lucky to be part of. And I think he, he was on the right track and then obviously we know that um, I think he's a guy that needs to be in control completely you know if he's going to have he, he works with these players he, he tries to play little mental games with them so he, he needs to be the boss as he was in Toulouse there was obviously the change of presidency um, and then all the press who got on the bandwagon of is he going to get fired by Laporte and there was this big big talking point which and then obviously Laporte was there and you could almost feel that you know there's now there's now a battle of egos between the two bosses. You know, you could see if, look, if Bernard came to, to, to talk to us, then, you know, you could see by Guy's reaction that he wasn't respecting it or vice versa. And I just found that for, for me, that was like a bit of a, that was a moment for me that I was just so disappointed in, in French rugby at that moment, because you've got probably two of the most celebrated coaches in France, two guys who have a wealth of knowledge on French rugby. And if there was ever a time for two guys just to put their egos aside, to sit down and work together on the same page and say, listen, yeah, this is how we're going to sort it out. You couldn't ask for two bigger, two bigger names or two more experience from these two guys. And, and they just ended up, obviously, it ended in flames uh, with, with, with Laporte getting fired. There was also the, you know, the story of Laporte giving, um, giving Guy, uh, giving Guy a, an ultimatum of how many games he had to win. In the, you know, and it was just... It, it, it was so disappointing, you know. That that was probably the right time, and they probably had enough um, um, authority—not authority, but um, power—to go speak to the clubs. And you know, those two guys, if they worked together, would be able to probably have an influence on changing the system. But just incapable of of putting their egos aside and doing what's best for French rugby. And I think that's where French rugby is at the moment: is that it's a battle of of egos and prides instead of really let's make the right decisions now for French rugby. Um, and that's just, it was extremely disappointing to see how that whole, those two ended their, their well, his tenure ended with the French team. Obviously, we've touched on it, but you had your own kind of disputes behind the scenes. Um, you, despite being a France international, you weren't given uh, Gif status and, and you were sort of heavily affected by the, the change in the rules and what was happening sort of behind the scenes towards the end of your career. So can you just talk us through what happened at the time and, and how it kind of developed into a sort of a, a legal dispute with the LNR and to go to the Supreme Court and things like that. So, 
look, I, I had actually never questioned that I that I that I, that I wasn't Jif. You know, I had uh, Jif or the English listeners is obviously a player that's gone through an academy in France, counts as a as a local player in the quota system. Yeah, I'd never actually questioned that. You know, I, I understood that I was South African born. I've now come to France, and I was I was extreme. I, I would I knew I was extremely privileged to be playing for France. It came about, my agent got hold of me one day, said he'd spoken to, to, to an attorney who had had previous non-GIFs statuses changed to GIF. It, there were a few Georgians that, that were able to change their statuses in Montpellier. And, um, and he really feels that, that, that they've, they've got a case for me to change my status and he's going to you know, speak to the Federation. So look, obviously, you know, getting brought to me, obviously you're going to want to do that. A, a, a GIF player is obviously a lot more attractive to a club and a lot more valuable to a club than a non-GIF player. So, you know, it made sense to me. I was playing for France and uh, had the citizenship. And plus I had been in academy just not long enough. So it all made sense. And the sort of, you know, I was in the French side at the moment and they spoke to me at Marcosi at the time. They're like, look, you should follow the process and, uh, and, uh, and you know, we should try to get you this, this status. So I was like, of course, it's like a, it's a no-brainer. Quickly, I understood that this was a very political um, uh, environment that I was stepping into. You know, the league needed to protect their, their rule uh, uh, tooth and nail. And I, I, I very quickly found that all the guys that were had supported me in the beginning um, were, I was quickly, it was just me and my attorney left. You know, even my agent sort of distanced himself from me because, you know, I think the league had put a lot of pressure on guys not to not to meddle in this, you know, and... Uh, uh, but it also took a, a whole dimension in the media that I now found my I found myself in a position, one that I didn't really ask for and I didn't really want to be in. You know, like Benji said, I, I don't really want to be in the in the media, especially for anything negative and stuff like that. And I found myself caught up in this thing. Wherever I went, people were talking to me about it. The only one positive I had is that everyone sort of um, felt it from my side. They were all I really felt that there was a strong uh, support for me, saying, "Look, this isn't correct." So it it was a bit of a it was a bit of a dark time for me. I won't lie. It was uh, I was in a big fight. I, I you know, in the league took it extremely important. I remember going up to the Supreme Court just me and my attorney because I'd lost everyone else, and uh, and I think the league walked in with it with a legal team of like ten guys. You know, they were with the biggest guys. They were prepared for it. We were on a hiding to nothing. We were supposed to go to European courts, but I think at that stage, you know, I had lost all sort of uh, motivation to to keep going to to keep following this route. Um, so it was disappointing. It was disappointing for that to be played out in the media the way it was. I, I didn't want to be seen as someone who took what I'd been given in France, uh, you know, as like a bit of a spoiled brat. Now I'm trying to get more out of it. And I was worried that that's how it would come off. But um, my argument was more that as much as I'm, I'm all for there must be a system to protect the young French guys. I'm the first guy that there has to be. These guys need to be getting opportunities. We cannot be having clubs with uh, aligning 15 foreigners and, and the young guys aren't getting opportunity. Where I found that the, the, the rules were being bent was I was playing for France and I'd play against Fiji and there would be four or five GIF guys playing for Fiji, but I'm playing for France. And so I'll be, I'm becoming less attractive for a club because one, I'm away with France for quite a long period of the season. Plus, I don't count as GIF when I go back to the club. And I just felt that it, it, it was actually becoming a negative for me. It was becoming harder and harder to... And the clubs were telling me that, look, you're not attractive to us to take you. And so that was more... It, it, it just... Uh, the, the rule, in, in essence, is good, but it's just been totally bent by clubs that it's actually... I think the year that I did that, there were 45 guys 
45 players in, in top 14 and pro de deux who were GIF, who were protected by the French quota system, but played for other countries. And I felt, you know, that is wrong. 40, that's over two. You know, you've got two teams there of guys that aren't eligible to play for France, but they're protected by the quota system. I'm playing for France and I'm not protected by the quota system. And I just, I, I, I just felt that it was, a bit, it was a bit warped, the whole rule, even though I understood why there needed to be a rule in place. It is warped, but it's, it, again, it's falling into the political. It's because of the system that we have here in France with the FFR and LNR going at it constantly. And I heard as well, or I think I heard that through the process, it came down to a vote and, and you essentially been guided through the process by the FFR and they backed you. But then ultimately it came down to vote in the end and, and the deciding vote was the FFR. And if I understand correctly, they voted against you. So they ended up having the casting vote and it was them that blocked you from becoming chief after starting you and leading you down this process. Is that fair? Yeah, well, that's obviously where, that's obviously where, that's also where I decided to drop this whole thing. You know, I, 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 I understood now that it's taken, a, it's taken another course here um, when the FFR voted against it. Because um, what happened was I went to the Olympic Committee uh, and they voted in my favour. They said, look, if this goes to European courts that, you know, he's, he's got a strong case, he's a French citizenship, you can't be, uh, it can't be difficult for him. You can't put, have rules in place that's going to make it difficult for him to find work as a French citizen. Uh, and they voted in my favour. And, and they, they actually, I think the rule was that they, they, they gave me GIF status um, for three years. So I was at the end of my career and they said it, it, it could be retroactive, but I would have three years uh, GIF status. And that would allow me to finish, finish my career. Uh, and I think the, the federation then had 14 days to, to oppose it. Obviously, I didn't think that they were going to oppose it. I had, I probably had every club in the country phoning me. You know, I had all the big coaches, all the big clubs phoning me. You know, what chief status now? And you know, this was this was fantastic news. And on the fourteenth day, I, I got a phone call that the federation had then um, had then voted against me and uh, insane. Couldn't get hold of any of those those coaches that had been phoning me anymore. So <laughs> it was quite disappointing, and it just showed that the, the influence that that status does have. I mean, if you are Jeff, it, it, it is definitely a massive pulling point for clubs and stuff, which I understand. And um, it was one of those things. It was something that I, I actually, in, in in hindsight, I just wish, but I just wish I'd never taken on. I just carried on playing the way I was going and not get involved in something like that. But like I said, it was brought to me. It wasn't my idea. It was brought to me by people, um, and I obviously I take responsibility that I that I that I that I looked at the opportunity. Yeah, but my, my going not pursuing this um, uh, this this whole legal battle to get the GIF status would have mean would have meant sorry for you to keep on going with those big clubs. You would have to st uh, drop the French team. Because that's what you touched on. Uh, basically, imagine a professional coach of Toulouse or whatever. Why would he sign Scott Spedding if he still plays for the French team? So he's away eight, but it's like double punishment. But on top of that, he doesn't count in my quota. Yeah. So he would have had to give him something up in the meantime. I think th th this whole thing honestly made me very sad because you got caught up into, like you said, the, the egos that are the burden of our, have been the burden of French rugby for years and years and years. This is a conversation that should be behind closed doors between the federation, the league, and this and that. And then I sit down and say, listen, Scotty plays for the French team. Let's sort him out. Not only does he play for the French team, but he's a French citizen. And the, the legal thing is that basically if, to, to push down, 
if Scotty, when he was Espoirs for Brive, refused his first professional contract and actually stayed for the academy two more years, then none of this would have ever happened. It's literally signing a piece of paper, yes or no, and the status of the contract. That's all that changed. That's the only difference. But, but, but Scotty, remember, the league, when you said that to them, were like, oh, you're trying to kill the whole GIF uh, system as a whole you're like hang on no, no i'm not yes because if we allow it to you then we're not. and then your lawyers and everybody actually looked yes there could have been three guys maybe three guys that were possibly could have been in the same status as him that's not going to make everything you know rock their world and this and that it's purely egos it's the federation doesn't want was already at war with league so they can't work together so those conversations behind closed doors never happen and at the end, if they pulled out, because I learned that after, is because they finally got an agreement with the league regarding something completely different, which was a number of guys that the Guinoves could call up on the French camp. Remember that one? Going from 31 to 42. Yeah. And because they got that agreement, they thought, oh, fuck, if we actually back Scotty again, then they're going to say no to it. So it's just because people cannot get their heads out of their asses, get their egos out of their bodies, and actually just look at something for what it is, instead of making uh, a whole war out of it. And and that does just hit you. So you, you, you're a victim of that. It's, it's, honestly, it's, it's a sad example of, of how shit things can be over there. Yeah. No, it was disappointing. It was disappointing. And uh, one, I actually, in hindsight, I, I should never have just entertained the thought, eh? but like I said, I was, I was advised by a few people, maybe badly advised. And, and I mean, I mean, Benji, you helped me. You helped me. I mean, even, even in the beginning, the Players Association in France was all behind me. You know, they were there. They're going to help me massively. But I think they also received massive pressure. Massive pressure. We spoke about this already. Massive pressure for what? That's what they're there for. They're there to protect you. They're there to help you. The, 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 the president, Robin Chalewachu of the Players Association, called Scott. Like, oh, you know, and then I called him. And he's like, oh, you don't realize the amount of pressure I got. What the fuck? Do you, what's your job then? Your job is to take the, 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 the pressure off Scott. Your job is to be screaming because he put one tweet saying the players are sharing back Scotty. Oh, you don't realize the repercussion of this tweet. What else are you guys meant to do? You know, if you're not there to challenge and to speak up for the players, what is it? And again, it's because they don't work together and he was scared that they wouldn't get anything else because they were trying to fight. Well, I think it was like the pension and, the, you know, there's something to do with the contract structures that they were fighting for the players. Oh, if we fight the league with that, they're not going to give us this. Then kill Scotty, you know, drop one for, for the, the other 10 to stay alive. It's, it's sad. But then I hope, Scotty, for you, like you haven't gone through it in vain. I hope that the more it's talked about and the more people realize, like you've gone through a process, it exposes how daft the situation is here with LNR, FFR, even with Proval all being linked financially, how much pressure there is. I hope that ultimately you've gone through it. It has been a process that has been hard, tricky. It hasn't gone the way you wanted. Um, and you now wish you hadn't started it. But the positive that might come out of it is that we might see change. Eventually, if people get hold of the story, they understand how poorly run it is um, and how guys like you have been affected, we might see change. So yes regret but at the same time hopefully it's been for something yeah I, I do hope so i do hope that just some some common sense prevails in, in a system like that you know and I, I, I know bernard laporte he, he wanted to bring a, a different system into place he struggled to bring some of these ideas uh, into action obviously he's struggling to get past uh, past the league and stuff but obviously i also realized that um it's not that easy with European law and stuff like that to put something in place that's actually durable. Um, but in an ideal world, in an ideal world, what you would 
like to have is that Bernard Laporte has said to play for France now you need to have a French passport. So really, and I, I agree with that rule. I think that to play for another country you should have a passport. You know, the three-year rule it, it, it maybe cheapens a little. Once you've got a passport, you can play for France. Really, you've got that. To have a, to, to have a quota system, I think that you should one have citizenship. So you're French, you're a French citizen. Plus, you must be eligible to play for France. Then you, you should be protected by the quota system. There's no point in having guys protected by your quota system who play for other countries. And so, I, obviously, in an ideal world, I know law is difficult, European law. In an ideal world, it should just be citizenship plus eligible to play. You're protected by the system. And that way, the French coach is going to have an abundance of, of players that he can choose from. Because I think that's also where the problems come in. The French coach, even though a guy is GIF, he's a Georgian that plays tight head prop. So it's still, it doesn't help his selection criteria now. He still can't choose the guy. So the more um, eligible guys we can have in the teams, the better the French team is going to get because you've got more choice, you've got more competition. And I would like to see a rule, some sort of rule come in place like that where it protects the French team more than it's just enforcing a rule for enforcing a rule. I agree more. And Scott, we've gone through the whole the whole journey from sort of you know how passionate, how emotional you were to to play for France and to become a French citizen. And then we've talked about how the politics behind the scenes. I just wonder how much of a sour taste has it left because it had a massive impact on the end of your career and sort of you couldn't couldn't get a club like essentially from from the the clubs that were after you before. How much of a sour taste has it left? the players union and the FFR kind of saying they'd back you and then kind of disappearing. And then if, if, as Johnny said, if, if there is to be a kind of a good solution at the end of this, where no one else has to go through this again, it's, it's obviously painful for you, but is that something you'd be up for, for helping with in the future? Yeah, for sure. Of course. I'd love to, if I can in any sort of way help progress French rugby, even if it's just by giving my sort of perspective or experience of, of a system, then I'm all, I'm all for it. I think we all want to see good French rugby. I think world rugby is poorer for not having a good French team. Uh, I think the top footing is a fantastic competition. I think the teams that I, I really enjoy top footing, I love the crowds. And so I think just a few things need to get sorted out here. And we all want the same thing in the end of the day. Um, it did leave a bit of a sour taste at the end of my career. Um, I can't deny that. It wasn't the only factor. I could have continued playing. Probably wasn't getting the, the clubs or the contract that maybe uh, I was after. And, uh, you know, coupled with other things, coupled with I'd lost a lot of motivation, probably because of the process that I'd just gone through. Uh, I was a bit, I was just a bit deflated, and um, and uh, you know, it probably felt like the right time. I wasn't going to add much value to a team in in, in sort of with the, with the motivation I had and stuff. So I, I decided that it was a, a good a good time for me to probably call it, you know, had I had the GIF status, you know, you would probably be presented with an amazing project, an amazing club and, you know, obviously the salary that goes with and then you, you obviously motivated again. But uh, I, I had to be honest with myself because I did have, um, I did have, uh, you know, uh, Joel Dibb, who was the cust coach at the time, Ford's coach, who went to take on, on Uyanax and he wanted me to go with him. He, he, he really wanted me to go with him and be a, a senior player for him and, you know, but it, it was his first opportunity as a as a manager, as a head coach. And like I'd spoken with uh, with Storm, my wife, and I was just like, you know, I'm going to let this guy down. He's going to put a lot of hope on me going there because it's his big opportunity now. And I'm going to let the guy down. I need to be honest with him and probably tell him to you know put his resources or his energy into getting someone else. I, I, I was going to get down on myself. I, as Benji mentioned, I'm, I'm probably my biggest critic. And, and uh, I, I wasn't... 
I wasn't going to play the way I wanted to play. I'm going to disappoint him. I'm going to disappoint myself. And it was the moment that I said, look, all in all, it wasn't just the jiffing that played a part. It was also the way I was playing, maybe because I'd been affected by things. But it was it was a, a group of things that sort of made me, look, this is probably the time, time to call it. And uh, disappointing that it ended like that. Obviously, it would be great to end. Uh, we all love to end with a title or with a big send-off and everything. I didn't get that. But, you know, there's still so many more positives over over the, uh, the, the, the 10 or 11, 12 year career that I had in France that I'm extremely proud of and uh, very, 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 very fortunate to have had. Well, that's incredibly gracious of you to turn down that, that contract because you didn't think you would add, add what, what you might have done. I, I think a lot of players would have taken that, that deal and just um, wrote, wrote it out and earned the money and, and gone off and retired that way. But um, that's the past and the present and the future now, the, the positive. I know you, you worked for um, Supersport, didn't you, on the World Cup last year. So what are you doing now and what, what's, what does the future hold for Scott Spedding? Yeah, so I finished, obviously finished in June last year. And uh, I decided it was a good idea to finish my studies. Eh? Something I neglected uh, early on in my well, in my early twenties to rather focus on rugby. So, so I got that got that done, which was quite a relief. And then a great opportunity to go to SuperSport over the World Cup. I went as an analyst to talk about the French team. You know, they had a guy from each country, and I went to talk about the the French. And uh, it was a great experience. So, look, any opportunities I've had. A, I've worked with Johnny on a few games for BT Sport in England, which has been which has been good fun. So it's nice to stay involved in rugby like that. You still get to go to the game. You talk about it. You have to do your research. So that was quite enjoyable. And you know, we'll we'll see what um, what the future holds. I don't have anything that planned for the moment. But um, yeah, I'm actually really enjoying life after rugby. I'm enjoying watching the guys. I'm enjoying playing a lot of golf now and uh, a lot less pressure. You've got a big project coming up next year, Scott. You'll be out there with the with the Lions too, will you not? Yeah, so uh, I was obviously I'm passionate about the the Kruger Park and Safari and stuff like that. So when opportunity came for for me to get to 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 be involved in a lodge in South Africa, you know, we built a lodge in the Kruger Park, and so that's a bit of a passion project, but also a business that that we're running at the moment. And then for the Lions tour, we're gonna we'll we take a few groups out. Obviously, you know Mark Phillips very well, um, played with him in Bayonne, and he'll be out there and he'll be hosting evenings around a open fire with a few drinks and talking you know, everything rugby and <laughs> they could get messy those nights <laughs> I was going to say Serge Blanco's going to catch one of this mate Blanco's going to be out there straight away <laughs> sniff it from France <laughs> so, yeah we're looking forward to that so that'll, that'll be fun out there and probably Mark's a, he's a great guy to have you know he's, he knows how to uh, entertain guys and and have a, and have a, have a couple of drinks around a fire so we're looking forward to that and uh, yeah Hopefully the tour goes ahead, eh? We just don't know. It seems to be in limbo at the moment. Fingers crossed. Um, and you didn't fancy coaching, Scott? No no ambitions to move into coaching? or Look, I, I never, I'm, I'll never say never. I, I think I would enjoy coaching juniors. Uh, and I, I might go uh, start soon with Bayonne and coaching some of the junior stuff. But more just out of, you know, trying to pass on a bit of knowledge. If I can help any younger, like I needed help. I had a lot of I had guys who helped me as a youngster. And if I can pass it on to anyone... Uh, and how to go about things, you know, I'd love to do that. Uh, I don't think I was ever a great um, video analyst of rugby, you know, like a guy like Nick Abendanen would watch a video and, and work out how things, how things sort of came about. And he was, he's very good at, at, at analyzing games and, and opposition. And it was, it was never really something that interested me. I used to hate video sessions. And so I think professional rugby hasn't really, um, hasn't really been that attractive to me. I'll never say never, maybe, maybe by coaching juniors, uh, I find my own way, but um, probably not not on the radar. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Scott, and sharing your journey from South Africa to France and, and all the all the trials and tribulations in between. Um, and good luck with any future media opportunities and also coaching your son and Johnny's son through to the France international team. Yeah, cool. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Cheers, Scotty. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Scott. Mommy! <laughs> legend. Yeah, an amazing bloke. Absolute legend and probably the example of how to come to France and do it, um, ending up being a fully, fully fledged international. And he's a good bloke as well. And he's now properly into his life after rugby. He can now, he took me down to the beach, I think, two weeks ago. I don't know how many bottles of rosé we got through, but it took me about two weeks to recover. So he's certainly enjoying life after rugby. He, he downplayed that a bit, um, but great guy. A teammate of yours, Benji, a lovely bloke and uh, one, of, one of the good ones that's done it really, really well coming over. No, it's good to see him. Look, he was... Not only was did he did he fight with his with his not mental health but with his mental side where he blamed himself all the time it was so heavy and he could get dark sometimes he trained like an animal I mean he was the guy who would come and because you think he wasn't fit enough so he would run he would do weights he would do whatever he was constantly constantly at, on an edge um, not necessarily going out much and trying to be careful and you know he really it was he was being very hard on himself so basically see him like you said with a smile on his face sort of almost uh, philosophical about what happened before and just enjoying life is, is good to me. It's good to see. I think he's one of those guys that is better off retired. Like when retirement comes, it's a, it's a good thing. Like you get people that really miss it and really battle with not having it. But like you talked again about his battles when he played and how hard he was on himself. Not having that pressure week to week for some people is a good thing. And yeah. Scotty's definitely one. Like, I'm not missing it either, but Scotty's one of those guys. Now you can actually finally relax. You can go and play golf. You can have a glass of wine, have a beer. Um, and, and life is easier for him now. So no, top bloke. And he's done it the right way. Good man. Yeah, brilliant to have Scott on. And we won't talk too much about the top 14 this week because we're coming out quite late in the week. But um, your old club, Johnny Bayon, had a good win at Stade Francais. Um, I think it was the first time they'd won in Paris for about, about a decade, wasn't it? Yeah, more, I think. Also more impressive when you consider the context so the financial battle that they're up against. So you, again, people won't realize, but things are even harder now with COVID. There is so little money, but Bayon got on the train. They did a five-hour train journey the day of the game, fell off the train and absolutely blitzed Stade Francais. I mean, you can't play down enough or you shouldn't play down, sorry, just how, how big a, a fight and how big a struggle that is. It was the same. So Bayon, when we got promotion up to the top 14. We had to bus to Oyonnax for 14 hours the day before a game and then play Oyonnax at one o'clock the next day. Like, it's a tough old grind. So the, the fact that these boys, um, and there's a special team spirit, they're a good bunch of lads, they work bloody hard, that the fact that they could rock up after a five-hour train journey and do that, and the manner in which they did it to Stade Francais, mm. they, they pretty much took them apart, is impressive. So um, it was good to catch up with a couple of them Monday, Tuesday, just say, well done, they were chuffed to bits. Good images coming back in the changing room. They had a good laugh as well um, on the train on the way back down. So well done to them because that's hugely impressive given the context and the fight that they have financially. A hugely impressive victory for them. Yeah, it's a big victory. Bayonne looking good on the other side. My old teammates, Clermont, did a classic. They blew away Agen, but they didn't get the bonus point. And Bordeaux, funnily enough, had a bad loss in Lyon. And it was completely the other way. So Bordeaux and Lyon are basically sort of west, est, east of France, opposite. And Christophe Rios was like, next time we'll take Amazing. the bus. Because they took, they took a private plane to go. And so they went there. He, he did a 10-minute speech. If I could translate that one for you, it's, it's like Comédia de l'Arte, but French. He's just next level. He takes the piss out of all of them. 
you know, it was about, you know, if you don't want to play, you won't play. They're going to be bound on the bus. Now nah, I'm going to be angry today. A little bit more angry tomorrow. I'll be very angry Wednesday. Um, now nah, we're going to, fuck that. Nah, no GPS this week. No, 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 no GPS. <laughs> you can forget about that. We're going to go balls, 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 balls. Yes, I want contact, you know. So he was sort of playing that thing. Uh, he's a bit of a character, Christophe Joris, I have to say, but um, completely on the other side of the spectrum. So basically, they're going to go back to the roots and do follow Bayonne's example, bus it, train it, whatever it is, but no more private planes. If you're a French speaker, that YouTube clip of his is post-match press conference already <laughs> with three quarters of a million hits. If you can speak French, good. go and watch it. He's, he's awesome. He's a great orator, like having worked with him. He's a funny guy as well. But go and watch the clip. If you can speak French, it's, it's, it's well worth watching. It's, and it's like 12 minutes long. There's probably two questions. You don't, yeah. need to, you don't need to ask him anything. It's a monologue. Just let me go. You know, it's a rant about it. Ah, am I happy? Ooh, ah, that is funny. Very French, very funny. And international rugby coming up as well. So Fabien Galtier has named his France squad this week, hasn't he? So what have you made of it? And um, one question I had, I'm sure you'll talk about who's in and who's not, but Mohamed Hawass, are you surprised that, that he's in? Because we sort of spoke about his issues off the field. No, I'm not, I'm not surprised, to be fair. So he, he led the team down massively against Scotland by punching a dude and getting a red card. He should have not done that. What happened in Montpellier, without going into the secrets of everyone, is not the end of the world. Uh, he got caught up into... Well, he behaved with a couple of teammates like he should have not done. Okay, Since then, he's back on the pitch. He's playing well. Uh, so I think the issue is behind. What they what they meant to say is that you're you're playing you're playing your cards now, so you better behave. I don't think there was many surprises in that French squad other than bon, Damien Penault was out for two months. He um he sort of you know the the, the ligament at the base base of your of your tibia tibia fibulaire. I don't know how you call that. But he's out he's out for two months, so he's going to be a big big miss. For those who've seen the semi final or well, the quarter final and the semi final of Champions Cup of racing. They discovered a, a beast of a man playing tight head called Colombe, and he's only 22. He's I think he's a, a meter 95 or 135 kgs, just an absolute unit, born and bred in Paris. And he got picked up in that squad. So that, that's, that's a big, big uh, uh, prospect, or I don't know. Uh, they do tend to call some guys uh, that will learn the environment, learn what it is to be part of that squad and all that. And then to touch back on, on the whole fight between the league and the federation, uh, the league kicked out a fuss because they were fed up of having 42 guys called up. So now we're back to 31. Uh, so it lasted, it, that unity lasted three months. And then pandemic arrived and then we're back to square one. And there's only 31 guy, guys who got picked. But uh, no, good, 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 obviously good side. You start the, when I see Entamac Jalibert at 10, when I see Dupont Sorin at nine, when I see Olivon who's playing really well, Tao who's playing really well, the second row, I see that Colomb coming back. Um, there's some exciting talent, Vakatawa, Teddy Thomas back in after only what one or two games or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's still a hell of a lot of talent, and I can't wait to see them again. And even some of the guys left out that we haven't really like Makalu at Stade Francais, who's been unbelievable injured, since the injured. start. Injured, actually, they had to say it because otherwise it was such a uh, a surprise for not having him. I mean, he's been frightfully good. So he was one guy I was hoping to be picked up in the squad. I hope he gets some game time later on because it's been almost three, three years now, three, four years that he hasn't figured. But I thought this year might be his, his chance to get in and his form yeah. has been exceptional. So, so for him, and yet Colomb, again, the big talking point in France is this new tight head and tight head's not an area that France have struggled. But since, you know, the era of Nicolas Mass and absolute French scrummaging domination, there hasn't been a real pillar of light um, on the French tight head and watching this guy coming through I remember watching him for the under 20s for the French side um, and he was an absolute monster and he's made that step up really quickly first choice now at Racing um, and I really hope he could be maybe the next step 
um, for the French side and, and some, some, some renewed French scrum domination. So um, he's got a couple of huge weeks coming up again before we get to the internationals with, with the final, which hopefully we've played. Racing have got zero cases, so fingers crossed for them. But he, he's been my biggest guy. He's, I've been a fan of him since the start of the year and caught him under 20. He's been exceptional. Other guys kind of unlucky to, to miss out. So Clemenzak from Racing has come in at centre, whereas I thought maybe Tozan from Toulouse might have had the nod. He's been freaky again since he, he got his first game time last year with the S-bars at Toulouse and then first top 14 games last year. He's been exceptional as well. And it's more, you talked about Teddy Toma coming back in, but when you take Damien Penno out of this French side, you know, we talk about French flair and the running rugby that we like to see. That's the one, not area of fragility, but it's the, it's the lightest area for me is the back three. So if you look at, you know, you've got Vincent Rattez, you've got Ramos and Boutier playing fullback, but there's not the sort of dominance that we're used to seeing. And um, whether it's with Uge or Beno, these guys for me are, are slightly different. I, I agree with you, Johnny, but to be fair, who knew Boutier and Rattez uh, 10 months ago? And then now everybody in, in England knows them because they absolutely exactly. killed England for the first game of Six Nations. So I agree with you. It's not, it's not sort of the, the name power, but I mean, the results are there. And you've got to give one thing to Galtier. They, they picked guys that delivered. The Boutier, the Awas, the Rates, the Arthur Vincent, you know, the, the center, uh, Olivon captain, whatever. And, and they just keep, keep them there. It's, it's not about the name, it's about how you perform. Well, they will look forward to um, working with Fabian Galte and being um, well drilled by Sean, <laughs> Sean Edwards in the, uh, in the weeks to come. Um, and we'll look forward to talking about it some more because it's not far away, the um, end of the Six Nations, finally, and then the Autumn Nations Cup. So um, we will be chatting more international rugby in the, in the coming weeks as well. Uh, thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Benji. And thanks to all of you guys for listening as well. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave us a review, drop us a message on social media, and we will be back with you with another episode next week. Au revoir, guys. Cheers, Cheers guys. guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.